Uh, thanks to those who are watching online as well. If you were with us last week, you know that we uh, resumed our study in Mark, uh, following after the servant Savior Jesus. Uh, we looked at chapter 9, the first 13 verses of that. Jesus in that passage takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. Verse 2 of chapter 9 says, He took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. Uh, Peter, James, and John had this unique experience of seeing Jesus in all his glory. God had revealed himself. Not only that, Moses and Elijah was there. They had heard the voice of God at the same time talking to Jesus about him being the beloved son and to listen to him. And now after this event has happened, we see in chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus coming back down the mountain. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. So before we go any further with that, let me go uh, pray for us this morning. God, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity you give us to come, uh, to sing, to rehearse the truth and the words that we sang, to be encouraged by one another in the fellowship of believers. And God, now we come to your word and we pray that by your spirit you would teach us in all wisdom, and all truth, that you would give us a sensitivity by your Spirit to hear from you in areas that you want to grow us into the likeness of Jesus. So God, I pray that you would convince us, challenge us, convict us, and also remind us that you've empowered us to live what you call us to live. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you that they would hear from the Lord this morning and respond? In Jesus' name, amen. As we talked about last week, many of us, if not all of us, have had those mountaintop experiences or those God sightings uh, that where, where you understand that you are in the presence of truth and wonder and comfort because God has been revealed to you. And I'm sure that if you could have asked Peter, James, and John, they would tell you that the trip up the mountain, this hike with Jesus was one of the greatest hikes that they had ever been on. And the same thing kind of happens when, when I was doing youth and what Andrew's talking about going on these youth trips, that you come back from these trips, or you go on a mission trip, and you come back from these trips that having have been with God. Maybe it's even been experienced in a great Sunday service or even a great devotional time that you get excited you're filled with stories. They had this great sense of unity of being with Jesus, bubbling over, rehearsing all that they had been a part of. But then like the trips that we had taken in youth and on mission trips, as people come back, you see this kid go with that parent, and they get in the car and leave, and, and these people from the mission trip get in there with their family, and they go. And they had all come down, if you will, from the mountain. And it's the same with Peter, James, and John. They come down from the mountain as well. And so it begs the question, what awaits us when we come down from the mountain? What can we expect to find after being on the mountain? Well, some things that could await us are routine, going back to normal, going back to what it was like before the mountain. Or maybe we 
can await this thing that happens to a lot of us is forgetfulness. We forget the mountain even happened. We face trials. We face people who don't understand about the mountain. We're tempted. There's a fear of returning to normal or busyness after wanting to be changed after the mountain. And yet each of us have had this mountaintop experience, and, and in that moment, like Peter, we just want to stay right there. We don't want to come down. But the reality is, is about life is that we are surrounded by valleys, even after having experienced the mountain. So like the disciples, or like mission teams, or youth groups, or maybe even like one of us, we've come back down from the mountain, and there's a great opportunity and a great gift that we have, that is that Jesus wants to live, Jesus wants us to live with him in the valley, through the perspective we were given on the mountain. And so, remember last week, God gives us the mountaintop experience not to simply amaze us, but to capture our hearts and sustain us in the valley. So, life with Jesus in the valley, the theme for this morning is, life with Jesus in the valley always brings an opportunity to increase our faith and our dependence on Him. And so, the title of the message today is, Jesus and the Valley. Last week, it was God on the Mountain. And this week is Jesus and the valley. There's four areas we're going to look at. And the first one we're going to look at is accepting the reality of opposition. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to read verses 14 through 18 and stop there. And when they came back to the disciples, remember Peter, James, and John went, and they're coming back to the other disciples they saw a large crowd around them, the other disciples, and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth, and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. Peter, James, and John come back from being with Jesus on the mountain, and immediately they're confronted with a difficult situation. They're confronted with oppositions. And there's three oppositions that I think we can look at in their encounter. The first opposition is the opposition of themselves. In the valley we realize that life brings us situations and circumstances that prove that we have limitations. Now, I must say that there are times that I need reminding that I am not the smartest person I know. That I do not have all the answers. That I am not perfect. That although I try to be God, I'm not Him. Anybody else relate? There was one person in the first service who couldn't, and we talked to him between services. <laughs> I have, you have, all kinds of blind spots, all kinds of limitations. 
Peter, James, and John come down the mountain, and immediately they're confronted with the disciples' own limitations. There were nine other disciples there that were arguing, arguing with the scribes. There were religious rulers arguing with Jesus' disciples. Now, it's probably this sort of chaotic scene. There's a father. There's a demon-possessed boy, his son. There's the scribes, religious rulers. There's the disciples. And it says they're arguing. As one author described it, the nine disciples who remain behind the valley are being heckled and mocked by a group of smug and sarcastic scribes. And doesn't that seem to be typical? That right after a mountaintop experience, there always seems to be like this fight waiting. Many have said we are most vulnerable right after a victory. There's no doubt the mountaintop is to be remembered, one author said, but it is the moment after the mountaintop that must be protected. Now, as we can gather from this story, it seems that this desperate father had come with his boy to bring him to Jesus. But he realizes once he gets there that Jesus is not there. Jesus has gone with Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain. And so he's there with the disciples. And so this frantic father takes his son to the disciples. And the disciples have been unable to cast out the demon. Now obviously the disciples in that moment realized their limitations. It's interesting that this man had recognized that they had been with Jesus. And he was hoping that after being with Jesus, that the power and compassion of Jesus would be able to be given to him through them. But they could not do for the Father and His Son what Jesus had done for others. But we have to remember that our own limitations is not a place of defeat, but our opportunities to usher in the true victor. Opposition in ourselves ushers in opportunities for God. Now, so the scribes are probably arguing with the disciples about how they can't cast out this demon. And so they're heckling him which shows the second opposition in the valley, which are people. Now, let me just make a blanket statement. People can be in opposition for us, correct? Now, without reading too much into it, the scribes were most likely delighting, kind of gloating, that the disciples couldn't cast out this demon. Remember, the scribes were trying to discredit Jesus. They were trying to kind of prove that he wasn't who he says he was. They had been looking for ways to trap him and discredit him, and maybe this was going to be one of those ways. And so they are probably using the failure of the disciples against Jesus. And so it's important to know that the crowd and the scribes were judging Jesus by the disciples. Now let me say that again. The crowd and the scribes were judging Jesus by the disciples. And that still happens today. The reality of living in the valley with Jesus is that the disciples of Jesus are judged and watched by those around us. And sometimes they think about Jesus because of what they think about us. And so there's this opposition we face. 
Sometimes it's verbal, sometimes it's nonverbal, but it has to do with our loyalty of who we say Jesus is. We're tried by our peers, our fellow employees, our family, all watching to see if what we talk about Jesus is what we walk with Jesus, and that's the same. So the reality of opposition we see in these verses comes from people, people who don't understand People who try to trip us up, who try to deny what we live is real, or what we believe has no genuine effect. The scribes were in opposition to the disciples. But there's an ultimate opposition. The opposition from the evil one, Satan. Verse 17 says this, that the boy in the story is possessed with a spirit. This is a demonic spirit. It's a demon-possessed boy. Proving that Satan is in opposition. Now there's a story from World War II that goes like this. When World War II broke out, the war ministry in London dispatched this coded message to one of the British outposts in the inaccessible areas of Africa. And the message read this. War is declared. Arrest all enemy aliens in your district. The war ministry received this prompt reply. We have ten Germans, six Belgians, four Frenchmen, two Italians, three Austrians, and an American. Please advise immediately who we are at war with. (laughs) Isn't that sort of our, our culture and our life today? That we're bombarded on all these different sides, attacked by all these different things. And at the end of the day, we kind of go, who is it, really, that we're at war with? Ephesians 6, 10 and 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Why? Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the evil one. The devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against rulers, against the powers, against the forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Many of us, including myself, have heard that verse and quoted that verse for years. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But I wonder how many of us consciously live in that truth. That we live in this awareness and the reality that this is true. That we have an opposition in the person, I mean, in the presence of an evil one, Satan. Scripture describes him as a deceiver, a destroyer, a murderer, an accuser, a tempter, father of lies a robber, financial afflictor, physical afflictor, and destroyer. And many of us have experienced the evil one in these areas. And Satan never, ever takes a break. 1 Peter 5, 8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around continuously like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And many believers kind of nod our head and say, yes, 
Yes, that is true. But we live sometimes as if it isn't. And so we need to recognize that we have someone who opposes us. Ourselves, people, and of course the evil one. That's why believers have no business dappling or flirting or entertaining with darkness or with sin. There's a quote that says, Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And the reason... The reason that we dapple or flirt or entertain sin is because many times we're deceived on who is the power behind the sin. That we think it's not that big a deal. It's not going to make that big a difference. And all the while, Satan is the one behind it. C.S. Lewis had a quote that said this, The enemy will not see you vanish into God's company without an effort to reclaim you. But here's the encouragement. Jesus comes down the mountain into that opposition as well. Matthew 28, 20, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Deuteronomy 31, 6, Be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. So the promise is this, in the valleys we have powerful opposition, ourselves, other people, and Satan himself, but we have a greater God. And what happens next in this story is pretty amazing. Jesus helps hurting people. When Jesus arrives on the scene, he asks for an explanation in verse 16, and he asks them, what are you discussing with them? And then in verses 17 through 19, we see the source and nature of the discussion. Someone in pain, someone in need. Verses 17 and 19. And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him into the ground. And he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Now there's two primary people in this story that need help. The first one is obvious, that's the demon-possessed boy. But the other one is the father wanting relief for his son. And I believe each one of us has been at some point either like the son or like the father, either needing the help or desperately crying out for someone we love for help. In some way, this boy has become a victim of demon possession, and Satan throws the boy to the ground and causes him convulsions to seize the boy. Later on, we find he throws him in the water and throws him into the fire. And so this boy has no doubt physical scars, emotional scars that have inflicted him over the years. And it's true whether we identify with the son or identify with the father, the one begging for the afflictions to go away. We want relief. Many of us see friends experiencing hurt, and shame, and isolation, and pain, and judgment, and condemnation. They're marginalized because of decisions they've made or choices they believe in. And we hurt for them, and we want 
so much for them to be made well. And I'm not so naive to think that you're here this morning experiencing either the hurt of the boy yourself or crying out for relief of a loved one. Mountaintop experiences are wonderful things to experience. But in the valley, we are to translate those mountaintop experiences into valley living. Where people like us and people around us who are hurting need the truth of the mountain. In fact, what we have received from God on the mountain can become self-serving if it does not transfer into some type of practical living in the valley among other hurting people. Jesus says, you have freely received, freely give. In fact, in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, when asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. And so it begs the question, how well am I loving people who are hurting in the valley? I'm convinced that God gives us mountaintop experiences to equip us to minister in his name. The disciples came down from the mountain with Jesus. They were filled with the glow and this wonderful experience. They were full of encouragement. And then they're confronted with this reality. This dad who says to Jesus, I brought my son to your disciples. Matthew adds in his account that the father got on his knees before Jesus, begging Luke, the physician, records him as saying, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only son. The father is, is the, has this agonizing detail that's given here. Every single verb mentioned by the father is present tense. I mean, it, it is continuing to happen. It seizes him, slams him, foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, stiffens out. He is in agony, begging Jesus to intervene. The father was helpless, and apparently, so were the disciples. He says, I asked your disciples, and they couldn't do it. Now, put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a minute, or sandals. Have you ever been asked by a friend or family member who's crying out for help with a situation or circumstance, and you feel helpless? That no matter what you did, no matter what angle you took, nothing seemed to be helping. Can you imagine the disciples? Remember, sometimes people come to us as believers because of who we say we follow. That people who never before would have asked us to pray are in a situation where they will come to us and say, will you pray for me? And we do all we can. We pray. We try to help, and nothing changes. That's where the disciples were. I, I believe the disciples, their failure was not because they didn't try. I believe they wanted to represent Jesus well, not only for the Father and the Son, but in front of the scribes and the Pharisees and the whole crowd. 
It was a helpless and an empty position to be in when we can't help those in need. And so what does Jesus say to them? Verse 19, he answered and said to them, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. What do we do with people who are desperately in need of help, who are looking for answers? Bring them to Jesus. In the valley, there will be people who will come to us. Our role is to take them to Jesus. There was a pastor, friend, mentor, Ed Pettis, and he got an earful from me a lot. He was a mentor. And I would call and I would say, Ed, there are so many people with so many problems. They've got issues. I don't know how to help them. And he would listen and he would say, your primary role in loving and helping people is pointing them back to Jesus. One of the greatest things he ever said, always point people to Jesus. Bring them to me. Jesus is the source, the only one who can bring help to a hurting world. Next, we see the goal of Jesus. Increasing the faith is always the goal. In verses 21 through 24. And he asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it often has thrown him into the fire, into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. We all have goals. <clears throat> Some of us have goals to lose weight. We have goals to get in shape. We have goals uh, to help us financially, maybe to save more or spend less. Have you ever thought about that Jesus has a goal for his people? And his goal is to increase our faith. Remember, if that's been Jesus' role with the disciples the entire time. For them to believe who he really is. In verse 21, it says, And he, Jesus, asked the Father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. This verse gives another glimpse into the Father's heart and the desperation the father in the story relates that for years, for years, he's dealt with the affliction of his son. And when someone deals with an affliction for a long time, an illness, an addiction, it's easy to lose hope that nothing's ever going to change. Have you ever been there? Imagine what it would have been like for this father. While others are teaching their son a trade, He's trying to keep his son alive. And problems like this don't just affect the father and son. It affects the entire family. Other people start describing him as the family with the demon-possessed son. And others in the community would at best feel uncomfortable and at worst unsafe to be around them. And so there's this isolation that happens. This kind of removal from the community. 
And so it's not just the demon-possessed boy, it's the ripple effect that Satan does as well. This father could not leave his son alone for a minute because no one knew when the next attack would come. He had to remain alert and on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so there's no doubt that he was desperate. That he was tired. Which reveals verse 22. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And this man appeals to Jesus and says, if you can do anything. And I love how Jesus responds. Verse 23 says, if you can. As if to say, I can. So filled with confidence, yet with a bit of think about who you're asking. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible. The question Jesus is trying to get the Father to understand is not whether or not he can, but do you believe? Faith does not only consist in believing that God will do something, but that he can do something. Now, I need to make a disclaimer, side note, that this verse and others like it have been one of the most abused texts of Scripture. People have ripped it from its context to teach all kinds of things about faith. They take this Scripture way beyond what it's saying. Some have interpreted what Jesus is saying, that you can have whatever you wish as long as you have enough faith. And that's not faith in Jesus. That's faith in in your own wish. And one of the saddest, hardest times I saw this mis- mis- misinterpretation was when I was in high school, I worked for a guy named Robert Johnson. Robert was a great guy, had his own issues. He was the owner of a restaurant, executive chef. And Robert had a daughter named Hillary that was 12 years old. And she was diagnosed with cancer. And these religious types would come into the hospital room and tell Robert, Robert, if you have enough faith, totally misrepresenting. If you have enough faith, she'll be healed. Well, his little girl died. And it destroyed anything that Robert would ever understand about faith in God, believing in God. I'm not saying we do not pray specifically and passionately for God to move. But faith is not about telling God what he should do for us, but trusting that he can do something as he chooses, and we rest in that. If you remember, Paul had faith, and he prayed over and over, God, take this thorn out of my flesh, and God didn't remove it. David prayed, God, please don't let my son die. And his son died. Over and over in scripture we read men and women of faith praying to God for one thing and God choosing to do something else. Faith is not about having God on a string to do for us what we want done. Faith in God is trusting that God will do for us what is best and that he can do it. Yes, we want Jesus to help us with our specific problems and with people. But Jesus wants to develop and increase our faith in him. And it is true. We don't have a clue on this side of heaven 
his understanding or his moving or not moving in situations that we're in. And so we cry out like the Father, I do believe, but help my unbelief. It's one of the most honest and transparent responses recorded in the New Testament. This Father both declared his faith and recognized his weakness. And from this we see this, that spiritual growth equals increased faith. Faith is our confidence in Jesus, that he knows what he's doing, that he sees the bigger picture, that he knows what's best for us, even when we not, do not agree or understand. It's one of the hard principles of walking with Jesus in the valley. Which leads us to our last point, as our dependence on Jesus is our only hope. Verses 25 through 29. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Don't you just want to cry like, yes. <laughs> and after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up and he got up. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. We see in verse 26 that Satan doesn't give up easily. Even after Jesus tells him to come out, he still throws the boy in one last attempt effort, and I believe one last attempt effort to kill the kid. The evil spirit thrown him into water, into fire. So why not this last attempt before Jesus? And Jesus commands the demon to leave the boy. And Jesus took the boy by the hand and lifted him to his feet. Luke adds in his account of this story that he gives him back to his father. Beautiful picture. In Luke 9, 43, it says they were all amazed at the majesty of God. And in verse 28, you see the disciples and Jesus having a private conversation. Jesus, time out. That was awesome, but I got a question. When we came into the house, the disciples began questioning him privately. Why couldn't we do that? Now, it's not a foreign thing for the disciples to ask, because if you remember in Mark chapter 3, it says, and he appointed the twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have the authority to cast out demons. So it's a legitimate question. Jesus, why couldn't we do that? Now, we don't understand all the dynamics of why, but between the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and what scholars have looked into, it seems that Mark's account shows that the problem was not that they weren't trying, but they were busy defending themselves against the scribes and Pharisees and not praying. They were involved in an argument trying to cast out a demon without praying. And before we get too hard on the disciples, it can be so much easier to defend ourselves to argue, to reason, to complain, to get upset, to get critical than it is to pray. 
Prayer doesn't always change the situation, but prayer does change you. Because Jesus says, this kind can, uh, cannot come out by anything but prayer and fasting. Now, Jesus is not saying there's some type of magical prayer you've got to pray or some type of special words or some type of special posture. Jesus implied that they were neglecting a dependency of prayer in their lifestyle. One writer writes it like this. <clears throat> the reason for powerlessness is prayerlessness. Prayer is the vital link in transferring the power found on the mountaintop to the desperate needs in the valley. That's the link, prayer. And so it begs the question for us today, what are your thoughts on prayer? How often do you pray? When do you pray? Why do you pray? How long is your prayer time? Is your lifetime, is your lifestyle a lifestyle of prayer? Do other people ask you to pray because they know you pray? Today at lunch, this week sometime, I want to encourage you to think about your answer to this question. If somebody comes to you and says, describe for me your prayer life, what would you say? Prayer equals dependence, and dependence equals prayer. Prayer is the concrete evidence of our dependence on the Lord. On the mountaintop, there is the presence of Jesus, a radiant Savior. In the valley, there are messed up people who are crying out for help, including ourselves. On the mountaintop is worship. And in the valley is work. On the mountaintop there is power and purpose. And in the valley there can be frustration and failure. And no doubt, if we had our choice, we would all want to remain on the mountaintop. But our faith in Jesus is revealed in the valley. So I want to close with a few questions to leave you with. The first one is this. Have you and I accepted and do we understand the reality of our opposition in the valley. Whether it's ourselves, other people, but ultimately the opposition of the evil one. And so I want to encourage you this morning, don't flirt with sin. The evil one is behind it, wanting to kill, steal, and destroy you. Many have said, many scholars have said, that the picture of the boy is the ultimate picture of what Satan wants to do to the believer. Second question, are your eyes, ears, and hearts open to the people who need our mountaintop experiences? I have found in my life that loving God in some ways is so much easier than loving my neighbor. Because God on the mountain is holy and beautiful and accepting and loves me. And some of our neighbors are not that way. And yet Jesus calls us to love him, them. And whether we admit it, admit it or not, we're not always so lovely either. And yet we have a God who loves us unconditionally. 
The third question, is it your heart's cry and plea for God to increase your faith and trust in Jesus? Only he can increase it. But may our prayer be the same thing the, pro- the Father said. I believe, but help my unbelief. Is our prayer life evidence of our true dependence on Christ? Best for me and others. As we walk through this life, we see people every day going through a valley. Either the boy or the boy's father. And we need to be people of encouraging one another to do what Jesus says and bring them to me. It's our only hope, bringing people to Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this passage. There's no doubt there's questions there's things we can't put our finger on of understanding. But yet, I think there are principles that you teach us through it all. And so I pray that you help us hold on to those things that we know to be true. That you're with us in the valley. That we have opposition in the valley. And that you want to increase our faith. And so God, I pray this morning for anyone here who's struggling with their faith and what you're doing in their lives. God, help our unbelief. Help us trust you, even when we don't understand. And we'll be sure in all the opposition and all the people that we run into, that we'll be sure to do what you say, to bring them to you, whether it's through prayer or through service. And we'll trust you with the results of it in Jesus' name. Amen.